You are listening to the Revelation Podcast brought to you by Open Bible Baptist Church. In today's episode, Dr. Neil Sawatsky talks about the Great Tribulation. Throughout history, we have men like Stalin and Hitler who killed millions of people, but something even worse will come in the future. What will the tribulation be like? What things are already in place to launch the world into this time period? To answer these questions, here is Dr. Neil Sawatsky. I've entitled tonight, The Beginning of Sorrows, which is, uh, which is possibly not the best title for this sermon because it, it kind of does cover more than the beginning of sorrows. But it gives us the clear indicator of how it will be when that time comes. I, I do want to remind you tonight that our Lord Jesus had taught his disciples that you will hear of wars and of rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. And uh, so he said that there are many things that will unfold before the end comes. Uh, and so there have been, oh, rumors of wars, but there have been actual wars down through the years, one country after another, one group after another, and it's just been an ongoing thing. The, the story of the New Testament era is a story of pain and it's a story of agony. It's a story of horror uh, because we see that there was so much that has happened to God's people, so much that has happened to people that may not even know the Lord personally but have some religious ideology. And all of these things have just constantly been in the stir and they've constantly been happening. When, when you think of the uh, 1939 to 1945, uh, you cannot help but think of a person by the name of Adolf Hitler. And some of you know the story very well. Some of you may have just kind of tried to ignore it. Some of you might have said, well, that's a long time ago, and so uh, that, that's something that might have happened in history. Well, uh, the truth is that 10 to 12 million people were killed under his regime. Six million of them were people known as Jews, he uh, had a disdain for them and uh, just absolutely thought the world would be better off without them. And uh, so he sought to exterminate them from one way or another. I understand that Bible prophecy teachers at that time said the great tribulation is upon us. If, if really, if, if you would have been in that time and if you would have learned that this many people were taken by rail cars and various means into Poland and other places where they would have been taken into the chambers and where they have been put to death, you would have said that we have got to be in the tribulation. This has got to be it. And, and many of them said so. But 1945 came. Things got settled. The economy started coming back up. Industries start building up. Factories started standing up all over the place and life became somewhat normal again. Uh, I recall as a young child, I recall, uh, especially going to church, that you would hear stories about war and I just absolutely hated them because they scared me to death because I knew as a kid that was going to happen to us tomorrow. Uh, that's at least the impression I got. And some of these people come visit our house and tell the stories about what they had seen in the wartime. And uh, I said, oh Lord, keep war away forever. And, uh, and that, was, that was one of the things. It was just a frightening thing. Well, then you think of Joseph Stalin, and here is a name that is uh, so well known in history. In fact, 
he died in 1953, so it's not ancient history. But, but Joseph Stalin had his own system. Uh, the Bolshevik Revolution was a part of the Joseph Stalin thing. And, and he, of course, had a disdain for anybody and everybody that would not agree with his ideology. His ideology was that of no God whatsoever, no faith whatsoever, no belief whatsoever, but complete everything had to be secular and humanistic. That was his major ideology, which includes some other things. Joseph Stalin was responsible, and the figures go really crazy because some people put it at 20 million, some people put it at 60 million. I don't know that anybody really knows for sure, but somewhere between 20 and 60 million people that were slaughtered at the hands of Joseph Stalin. Now let me ask you this, can anybody get any worse than that? I would, I would say as we sit here, we'd probably say, no, that's about as bad as it'll get. Oh, no, it'll get worse. And, and so when we look at the time of the tribulation, and I just want us just to think about this a little bit. When we think of the time of the tribulation, it's different. It, it's, it is not the same. Uh, it's, it's, it's uniquely different in that, that the unfolding of events in the New Testament era, I'm not dealing with the Old Testament times, in the New Testament era, these were the action of men in the, in the hour of man. The Bible talks about the hour of man. It's the actions of men. It's the actions of depraved men. It's the actions of sinful men. That's what, that's what that is. But the tribulation is unique in that we now have God working to judge the world, to... Uh, to penalize the world, to bring about a change. And a change does come in the time of the tribulation. Uh, just, it's just uncanny the way things unfold during this time. And remember this, it is unique. It is not the same as any other time in history. It is absolutely and completely different. And so as we look at the uh, uh, sixth chapter in the book of the Revelation, we notice that in the first place that there is coming a world leader. Uh, when, when you listen to the current news in the world, there's no doubt that there's a lot of upheaval and, and a lot of confusion. And uh, there's, there's a lot of difficulty in the world. And one day, somebody's going to rise up that will know how to fix things. He will have the answers, and he will be able to convince uh, not only the, uh, the, the Western world, he'll be able to convince Israel, he'll be able to convince Jordan, Palestine, the surrounding nations. He'll be able to convince them that we're better off to have peace than to have war. And who wouldn't be in favor of that? I mean, absolutely everybody, except a few warmongers, but absolutely everybody would say, I vote for peace. That's what we would do. It's not going to be a hard takeover, by the way, because if, if he can be trusted, if he can be someone that people will put their confidence in, he'll be able to just kind of just get people to drink out of his wells of things that he offers for the world. And so in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2, we see the world leader that is coming. And John said this, And I saw... And behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, 
Uh, I believe that this is none other than the coming Antichrist who will become the head of the major part of the world. I don't know that he'll be the head of absolutely every part of it, but he will be the head of, of so much of it. And uh, that his, his name and his personage will truly count in that day and age. And uh, he comes forth, he comes as if he's on a white horse. And the white horse represents righteousness. And so he comes riding on something that appears to be righteous. So when he introduces his regime in the time of the tribulation, he comes deceiving. He comes convincing. He comes as one. He doesn't come with fire breathing out of his nostrils. Not at the beginning. And he doesn't come with a sword in his hand. He doesn't come with a spear in his hand and uh, just seeking to overpower men and conquering that way. He comes to conquer with mind control. He comes to conquer with political uh, savvy, with all kinds of abilities to convince people of the way that things should be for him. And so we see him come. The Bible gives us an insight about, uh, about uh, this personage way back 600 years before the days of Jesus Christ. The prophet Daniel had received visions from the Lord and God had shown him unique things. In fact, uh, Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 are really very unique chapters in reference to the future days. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, by the way, does cover a lot of history, but it covers things right into the future. But in Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, we have the little horn that is spoken of in the book of Daniel. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand, thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the judgment was set and the books were open. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. And let's just have a very quick glance and review of what Daniel saw. In, uh, in chapter 7, you see it to the right-hand side of the screen, these uh, very beautiful-looking beasts. And uh, to the left, you have Daniel's vision, or Nebuchadnezzar's vision, and Daniel's explanation of that vision. So when you look at Daniel's explanation of Nebuchadnezzar's vision, he, he gives the, the detailed story of four world kingdoms. Uh, these four world kingdoms were the beginning of an era. 
is called the Neo-Babylonian area. Now you had prior to that, you had Babylonianism and goes back into ancient history, but from the days of Nebuchadnezzar on, you've got, you've got a unique part of history unfolding. So Nebuchadnezzar, who was the head of modern day Iraq, uh, Babylon at that time, was the, <clears throat> was the world dominating power. Now, if you were to look at the world dominating power today, who would you say it was? Well, right now, U.S. of A. is, but China would be a close second. Russia, probably a third. But, yeah, that's exactly right. So, in, in every era, you have world domination, not control totally, but somebody who is the superpower. Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom was the superpower in his day. And uh, Daniel uh, gave much information to Nebuchadnezzar, thou art the head, he said. And then he said, your kingdom, however, will be taken over by another kingdom, and that kingdom will be that kingdom just east of you. Well, if you know the history of, uh, of uh, Babylon and Persia, now if you know the history of Iraq and Iran, if you recall back in the 1970s, there was an ongoing bloodbath that was taking place between these two countries. The stories were shown of young teenage boys, not so much girls, but mostly boys, that were being slaughtered through the ongoing battle. USFA was feeding Iraq so that Iran would not take over and rule Iraq. And so there was an ongoing battle until finally U.S. turned on Saddam Hussein because he just be, went wild with his ideas. By the way, Saddam Hussein believed that he was Nebuchadnezzar II. And it was his intent to rebuild the Babylonian Empire as it was in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. He had also established some buildings. And in those buildings, he has some bricks that were laid into those buildings that said Nebuchadnezzar II. And that was in honor of Saddam Hussein. Well, that just tells you from ancient times to modern times, these two countries have never been really friendly. But back then, the Medes and the Persians, and it was primarily the Persian Empire, the Medes were a part of it, but the Persian Empire were the arms of silver and the chest of silver. And so they would rise to domination and they would become the world power when Bag Babylon was subdued. Well, they were in power until the Greeks came and Alexander came as the driving force to uh, just dominate so much of the world. Did you know that Alexander the Great was in his 20s when he died? And he had captured so much of the world's power. He had gone from country to country. Uh, he was stumped at Afghanistan. I, I don't know what it is about Afghanistan, but no one can win Afghanistan. Uh, it, Alexander couldn't. The Russians tried it. They couldn't. The USA has been there, what, going on 20 years that they've been in Afghanistan. And, and while things have changed there, they're going to have to stay there because they have to keep it subdued or also go back to what Afghanistan was. But, but Alexander the Great retreated from Afghanistan, started to go back to the more home center where he was. And his kingdom was divided into four sections. So you have the Seleucids and these various people that came out of the division of the four heads out of Alexander's regime. And then after the Greek Empire had risen to its height and they started to go on the demise, you have the Roman Empire that comes into focus and the Roman Empire becomes the powerful force. 
it becomes the world dominating force. And so in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, the world empire known as the Roman Empire was controlled by the Caesars and they had puppets all over the place, including in Jerusalem, uh, where they had Pontius Pilate and they had Herod and all these people that were just simply employees of, of Caesar. So the Roman Empire was, uh, was a powerful force, a force to be reckoned with. The Roman Empire divided up into two, and you've got the two legs of the statue. That empire divided east and west. You have the Roman Catholic system that comes out of that one division, and they have their own little state that is completely independent, not ruled by anybody, but the Vatican itself has a state in itself. It's a country of its own. And uh, it has maintained power down through the years since it came out of the Roman system, uh, developed out of a part of the Roman system. Then you have the Eastern uh, Division, and out of that comes the Orthodox Church. And the Orthodox Church is, of course, the most idolatrous of all of the uh, churches that are connected with the Roman Empire and with the Roman system. So that you have, in this case, you have the state of Rome, and you have coming out of the state of Rome, you have churches, the Roman Catholic, and you have the Eastern Orthodox. So these come out of the, uh, the whole system known as the Roman Empire. Well, people oftentimes ask, whatever happened to the Roman Empire? When was the Roman Empire actually demolished, or when did it come to its absolute demise? And I want to say to you, it never did. It, it lost power, it lost influence, lost control. If anybody were to say publicly that the Roman Empire is our biggest threat, people would laugh you to scorn because that's just not the way it looks. That's just not the way it appears to be. But, but according to what God said to Daniel and the God gave the interpretation of him when he said, I want you to know that as you go down to the feet of this statue, there are 10 toes and the feet are made of iron and clay and the 10 toes represent 10 kingdoms. And then Daniel saw coming out of the, out of the sky, out of the mountain, he saw a bright, bright meteorite type of looking uh, thing that came out of the sky and came and crushed the statue at its feet and caused it all to tumble. And what he said was that this is the coming of the great authority. The Lord is coming to take over from the world empires and the world empires will submit to the authority of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is how the rule of man from Babylon time up until the end of the Roman Empire, that's the only way that the Roman Empire will ever come to a complete end is when the Savior, Jesus Christ, comes out of heaven to establish his millennial kingdom. And then there will be no more rule of man. From that point on, you have the rule of Christ. You have Christ reigning and ruling for that 1,000 years. And by the way, that 1,000 years then just goes on into eternity. Changes happen at the end of the 1,000 years, and we're not nearly there yet to talk about it, but, but changes happen, and, and the eternal state comes in thereafter. Well, it's interesting that God would give to Daniel a second vision, and he would say to him, look, I guess I'm going to have to show this to you all over again. So as you look at the second side of the screen, you had these monstrous looking creatures, 
At the top, you have the lion with wings and uh, all kinds of uh, nasty-looking things. You have, you have the bear with ribs coming out of his mouth, just really a weird-looking creature. Then you have the leopard with all kinds of heads, four heads representing the division of Alexander's Greek Empire. And, uh, and you've got the wings on the leopard. And then you have this grotesque creature that Daniel did not, did not liken it to any creature. You have the lion, you have the bear, you have the leopard, but he did not liken that last one to anyone, which simply indicates that this one would be the major player in all of the history of the world. Well, as you see from that, that picture down at the bottom right, you see that there are 10 horns that are sticking up out of the head of that one. That's identical to the 10 toes that are on the statue. But here you have the 10 horns, and then out of those 10 horns, there arises a little horn, and a little horn breaks three of those horns, and that little horn becomes the dominant person, and that's the one that Daniel describes in chapter seven. It is not Christ who comes out of that kingdom, but it is the Antichrist who comes out of that kingdom. And it was he who is represented in Revelation chapter six on the rider of the white horse that goes forth to conquer. So that day will come. We are also told by the writings of the Apostle Paul that the person who comes during the time of the tribulation is the man of sin. Let me explain 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 for you a little bit. Uh, I know that people have their opinions about this verse, but let me just read it for you, and then let me just take a moment just to explain it, uh, hopefully that it'll make sense to you. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, the Apostle wrote to the Thessalonian church these words, let, mo let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. The Thessalonians had asked the Apostle Paul a question. And the question was this, are we now in the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord is the time of the tribulation into the millennial kingdom. And because of the nature of the Roman Empire and the persecutions and the severity of, of treatment, especially of believers, the Thessalonians came to a conclusion. We are in the tribulation. Somehow uh, they believed that, that they were experiencing what had been described by the apostles as that horrendous time of God's judgment coming on the earth. And so Paul said to them, do not be deceived because that day will not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin will be revealed. When the Antichrist is revealed as the man of sin, it is then that the people will realize that they are in the tribulation period. There's no way that anybody will know that ahead of time. So when the man of sin appears, he is known in the scriptures as not only the man of sin, but he's also known as the son of perdition. So Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, I think they were small representatives of the Antichrist. They were, not, they were Antichrist, but they were not the Antichrist. The Antichrist will rise supreme and superior to the wickedest, most vile of leaders that the world has ever seen. 
the falling away, some people believe that to be the rapture. I believe it is a general wane of Christendom and Christianity. Right now, Christianity is still thriving. People still going to church. Church is still full and people are still interested in what's being said. But the day is coming when little by little the erosion comes in. And by the way, we could take the whole evening talking about the erosions of it. And it's not my purpose tonight. But there's a coming of falling away where people will just deny the truth. They will, first of all, they'll cast doubt on it. Next thing, you will have them denying it. The debates that rage on the internet and that rage on Facebook and rage on Twitter and rage on all these accounts, people just absolutely denying the very essence of Christ, denying the very essence of the Bible, people who one time sat in church just like you tonight. And they become the spokespeople for, for the anti-belief, the anti-faith system. You've got today, you've got a reform system led by Ronald Reagan's son, which is trying to undo Christianity in the minds of people. And he says, I fear no hell, I fear no retribution, I fear nothing for the future whatsoever. Well, this is where apostasy leads people. It leads them to the place where they become defiant against God in all respects. So when the falling away happens, the falling away happens, the rapture takes place, the Antichrist is revealed. People begin to realize, and they will realize who he is, and they won't until the middle of the tribulation, by the way, they won't know who he is until he makes it known what his purpose is. And his purpose is to, first of all, wipe out the Jews, destroy.